Hi, my name is Tom Martin. I'll be your host today. In our LawDroid Live podcast today, uh, we get to learn about legal ethics in the age of AI. And to teach us about that is today's guest, Megan Xavier. Uh, Megan is the founder and owner of Xavier Law, a California ethics defense firm. Uh, she graduated from law school Order of the Coif at age 21. She's a Spartan racer and mother of four. She's helped close state bar investigations and has gotten clients exonerated at trial. And I know she certainly has more energy than I do for sure. Well, Megan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a it's a real pleasure, I know, that um, to have you on the show. I know we first met up, um, I think, a little over two years ago at uh Yeah, the very first TBD Law Conference. That's right. And uh, that was mind-blowing for sure, to get so many people in the room that were so excited about um, kind of the intersection of law and technology. Did you feel that way? Oh, absolutely. That that was life-changing, that conference. It really, truly was. I, I don't mean that in any form of hyperbole. That changed my perspective on everything I do in my law practice. You know, today, that's kind of what we're going to talk about is from from your standpoint, you know, being an expert in ethics, and we'll get into that in a minute, but how does ethics Im impact, uh, you know, AI and technology? I know it's really the rage right now is, you know, legal tech is pretty much seemingly in everything and everywhere, and there's a lot of funding going on. And the real question is, how do we do that as lawyers in a responsible way? Um, I'm sure you're probably have been getting a lot of questions about that lately. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in in my space, and I know in your space, we see legal tech everywhere, right? All of our colleagues doing like amazing things. Um, some of them coming up with things that you never could have dreamed of even five years ago. But in another perspective that I always feel is necessary to keep in mind, throughout our profession, there are a lot of practitioners who are not nearly as highly engaged in legal tech as we are. And there's a whole contingent of our profession that's very resistant to the way technology is booming within our field. And this probably can be related to other professions, but probably going back 10 or 15 years because law is so slow to evolve. And so now as we start to address technology and especially from an ethics perspective, we're finding like there's a lot of people out there who are still resisting the use of technology, are still somewhat afraid of what it means to have tech so involved in our profession. And so it's really, really interesting to watch this all grow. I certainly find the tech really exciting. And when I analyze the ethics behind it, I look at it as these are opportunities for us to grow the profession, opportunities to serve our clients better, and opportunities to put out better work product be, if we know how to use these various tech tools properly. And for some, you know, if you're really forward thinking and you look at your, your work, you don't have to be a coder or anyone involved in technology and its actual development. But if you're really focused on clients, and you just sort of lift your head up and look around in your life outside of the profession, I think it's really easy to identify opportunities to do a better job of serving our clients by utilizing technology. And so there's so many opportunities 
it's really an exciting time. Well, I, I completely agree on that note. And also that, you know, there are a lot, uh, you're right. I think we, we forget that there's so many practitioners that aren't really on this bandwagon yet. Uh, and they still have a lot of, a lot to gain really from, from using technology in their practice. But, um, you know, these, these issues that are triggered by ethics, sometimes I think lawyers, um, they might be too busy. Uh, they might have uh, too many other things on their mind to really focus on them. And so I really appreciate your help today because I want to, I want to focus on these issues that lawyers should be thinking about and maybe give them some practical examples of what they can do to not only be compliant with the ethical rules, but by doing so to have a better practice. So on that note, what are some, what are some rules? Like, let's start with an overview. What are, what are some of the rules that generally get triggered by the use of technology in a law practice? Well, one of them that comes up that people don't always have at the top of their mind, they like to sort of lead off with, is our duties regarding confidentiality. So it's not just privilege. People forget that. Um, we aren't just obligated to maintain privilege. We are obligated to maintain our client's information um, when it's confidentially provided to us. And so that includes that when you're using technology, that you're making sure you know who has access to information that's coming in through the tech tools. This comes up, um, for example, if you have um, a chat bot, which Tom, of course, <laughs> you're very familiar with, um, on your site, who sees the input to the, to the bot? Or who sees the input to your contact forms? Some people will have their web developers or SEO people still see all of the content that comes in through a contact form. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean you're necessarily violating the rules, but you need to be paying attention. Who does have that information? Are, are they still employed by your firm? Are you still, not, that doesn't mean necessarily a W-2 employee, but are you still on a contract basis with those people who have the information? Because if they are part of your firm, including as a contractor, then you're probably okay. But if you never changed the password or you never changed where the contact form gets copied to, and it's a developer who's not with you anymore, and all of your potential clients' confidential information is going to that person, you need to be aware of it. And so from the simplest tools like that contact form to the most complex AI tool you might employ in your firm, security and confidentiality are really important. So that would be the first rule I would always highlight. A second is the rule that you have to perform competently. And every jurisdiction has this one, you know, very basic rule. Um, all of our work, we need to make sure that we're performing competently. Tech tools have a tendency in, I don't want to say the wrong hands, but in hands that aren't being careful enough um, to be relied upon too heavily. And so a really great example of this one that I always like to bring up is that there are uh, court rule calendaring systems out there. And you, know, you put in a couple of dates and you say you're in this court and it's supposed to spit back to you all the dates that are relevant to your case. Right. When's discovery going to have to close? When's trial going to have to start? All that stuff, right? Yeah, statute of limitations, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and they're super handy and they're awesome. Well, 
I recently had an experience that, that highlighted the limitations of tools that, that particular tool in particular, um, I was in court and the judge had laid out through the computer system. She kept saying, well, the computer told me the computer said, this is the last state for the state bar to provide a report in this particular case. And mm -hmm. the state bar and I both said, well, actually, we came up with the next day. And she wanted to, to know why. How did we come up with the next day? And here the parties agreed, right? <laughs> that was unusual. We actually agreed. We're like, no, because you can't count this day. And then this, you know, would go over to here. And we were both quite certain everything moved to the next day. And the judge didn't even want to look at the rule. She said, no, no, the computer said it's this day. So her order says it's that day. And of course, we'll all go along with it. But if you're a private party, you're dealing with figuring out your deadlines and not the judge who gets to make the rules and right. you come up with, well, the computer said I have until this date and that's not correct for some reason, um, you're violating your duty to perform competently. So it's just one example of how over-reliance on tools can be a problem. We have confidentiality. We have competence. Are there any other rules that kind of come up in the technology context? Well, it's not exactly that the technology causes the problem, but our rules regarding fee splitting and mm. the, you know, paying for recommendations, all of those, all of the rules that come up in the marketplace arena, the attorney marketplace arena, um, are really important to keep in mind, not because they're so easy to violate. Um, those, the marketplaces are just one example. Um, and by that, I mean, like Avo used to provide and other entities are providing or looking to provide and developing um, systems where the consumer can go online and say, I need a lawyer to do X, Y, Z in this state or the city and lawyers go on and are matched to clients. And there's set up various ways, um, but they are a way that technology is very naturally trying to solve some problems in the legal profession because we solve the similar matchmaking problems in other arenas the same way. And so it's very natural that there's been a lot of progress towards people developing these platforms in law because it's so easy to see the logical nature of the matchmaking services because we see it elsewhere. Um, it goes back to 1-800-DENTIST commercials you know, 20 years ago mm -hmm. and has just evolved. Um, lawyers are often just drawn to those systems because they seem so easy to use and so okay, so acceptable because we see it everywhere else. And there's actually a lot of rules that come into play. And so there I highlight that not because it's easy to violate the rules, but because it's kind of easy to forget about those rules because it's a practicality trumping the reality of our ethics rules arena. How does advertising with what's possible now trigger any, anything? Does that come up? Oh, definitely. So the advertising rules are still hindering lawyers' ability to use certain tools that are totally mainstream in our lives in every other profession. Um, and as consumers, you know, the lawyer as the consumer, we see all these tools being used and then we get hiccuped by the, the advertising rules. So those definitely come up as well. But they're so different jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And even the the recent changes to the ABA model rules really didn't change a ton. That's a 
whole discussion for another day. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they made very minor incremental changes. Um, at least they were in the right direction because that's always a fear too. Um, but because they are really specific in each state, you have to look quite carefully at them and then try and overlay them to a world that did not exist when the rules were written. And that creates some headaches. And unfortunately, for a lot of lawyers, it means that they just stop short and don't even try certain advertising means, um, Google AdWords being one. There are lawyers who just go, oh, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. And that's as far as their analysis goes. So when it comes to oh. using online and other tech-driven um, means of advertising, definitely the rules come into play and need to be looked at carefully, not as just a stop, but read them and analyze them and see what you actually can do. But it's definitely an area for headaches. Okay, so let's, let's drill down a little bit into these different areas. So going back to confidentiality, um, and you pointed out, it's not just about attorney-client privilege, it's also generally how how this information is kept and it, you know, information data, like wherever it might be, I guess, what is a practical way that a lawyer who's just, you know, running their practice, they might be a solo, might be a small firm or even a large one. Like what's a good practical tip of, of what they should do? Um, would, would having a, um, a written policy, for example, be a good first step? Or do they even need one? A written policy is definitely a good step to take. I think that the more you can document you know, the steps that you're taking to ensure security, the better. And of course, you want that policy to actually embody <laughs> good steps that you're taking. <laughs> I suppose a written policy which said you're not really doing the right things is not going to help you. <laughs> um, so it needs to be actually vetted and, and thought through. But that is a good, definitely a good step that you can take. Also, I think it's just really important for lawyers to get over the intimidation factor. And when you talk to a lot of practicing lawyers, especially solos and small firms, and you say, well, are you looking into cybersecurity? Are you paying attention to that? Um, they just kind of gloss over. And it sounds really scary and it sounds really sophisticated and like something they couldn't possibly um, you know, understand or get their arms around. It's really not as complicated as some of the terminology might make it sound. And if we can all accept that this is part of our duty to make sure that we're paying attention, then it helps sort of get over the intimidation factor. Like, yes, you actually need to do this. This is important. And once you realize that it's important, start asking the same questions that you would if you were trying to understand some other aspect of your practice. I mean, if you're going to rent physical office space you want to know if there's a lock on the door, right? And you want to know who has a key. And you right. want to know if your filing cabinet in the back room is also separately locked. I mean, just the same sorts of questions, which don't seem nearly as intimidating. Well, now you're going to ask those same questions about your technology. Who has a key? How do you access it? Is it open in the back? <laughs> you know, if you is there a back door to this building that's always left unlocked? Well, you'd want to know that. Same with your technology. And so a huge part of making sure that you're in compliance with your ethical duties with the technology comes from just understanding what it is and what questions to be asking. And you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a coder. You don't have to be able to build the system any more than you need to be able to build the building that your physical office is in. 
to understand how it's locked, who has access. And then if you can sort of get past that intimidation factor and ask those right questions, you're well on your way to ensuring the security of your data. I, that's an amazing point. I, I also, it, it triggered me to remember Ed Walters had given this talk. I forget what conference it was at, but it was about, um, you know, usually people talk about security in the cloud, right? And how mm -hmm. there's all these issues about uh, security that come up when something is stored in the cloud. And his his talk was actually about the security issues that are triggered by having it on having data on the ground. And uh, I think he was talking about exactly those different issues about are the doors locked? Can people get in? And people forget that, that there's a lot of uh, risk in just the way we normally handle things. Yeah, it seems less risky somehow because it's more familiar, but mm -hmm. it's actually not less risky. So, okay, so let's say we are um, we are having vendors help us. We have contractors that are creating, uh, let's say, technology tools. We, we have these forms that are being submitted that might be viewed by other people. We're also using third-party apps. Um, let's say we use Google for our email and calendaring system and all that. Would it also help to, to have like written agreements with these people to, to pin down what kind of confidentiality or security measures are taken? It absolutely would. Now, it's not going to be practical with, say, Google. If you're using mm -hmm. Gmail, you know, you're not going to get Google to sign a separate agreement with you. But they have terms of service. And so if you look at the various ethics opinions that have come out, there's not a ton of them, but the ones that do come out about these issues, they don't say that you have to go to Dropbox or to Google or to whoever your provider is and get a separate agreement, but you do need to look at their terms of service. And I mean, honestly, I don't think most lawyers are doing that, but the reputable companies have enough in them at this point that, mm -hmm. yeah, it's okay. You can use Google as your you know, Gmail service provider, your G Suite, whichever version you're using, and feel that for the most part, you're, you're covered. The state bar doesn't expect that you are going to understand every bit of the technology, have all the information as if you could build your own secure system but they do expect that you're going to take reasonable steps. You're not going to use as a third-party email provider some fly-by-night outfit that nobody's ever heard of, operated out of, you know, name your third-world country that has no security protocols in place. That's probably not going to fulfill your duties. But when right. you're using the mainstream providers, they have been vetted at this point. They, You're not the only one using them. And, you know, we can pretty much assume that we're going to be okay with those major providers. Now, when you're going to use a contractor you're going to hire somebody and they may be overseas, you know, I'm not at all saying that we aren't outsourcing overseas on some of these things. Um, but if you're hiring an individual provider or a very small company, you want to make sure that you do have written agreements because first of all, if you're not staying within the law, um, the legal industry, in terms of who you're hiring, you're not hiring only consultants who deal with only lawyers, then you might have somebody who's never dealt with a lawyer before and who doesn't understand the difference in the information you're getting. You know, if their other clients are plumbers, um, it doesn't matter if the plumber's contact information or client contact information is known. It's different for us. And so you might have to educate your contractors. 
And part of that education can be in the form of coming up with a written agreement. But you want to cover those bases so that I always view this as if you're ever asked, right? If you're ever defending yourself because something happened, because no one's going to ask you otherwise. Nobody's coming to your office on an average sunny day and saying, so how are you protecting your data? They're only going to be asking you if something went wrong. So if something goes wrong and you're defending yourself, are you going to have put together enough reassurances that you really had every reason to believe your data was secure? And that would include a, a written agreement with a third-party contractor. You'd mentioned that, and, and naturally from, from all of this comes the issue about competence. And it's not only as lawyers do we know the type of law that we're practicing well enough to actually practice it, you know, especially if we're new to uh, a certain area of law, but it, it actually requires us to be technologically competent too, right? Aren't there a lot of new rules now that say, I mean, in different uh, jurisdictions that say that lawyers have to be competent about the technology they use? Yeah. So not too long ago, the ABA issued a new comment to the competence rule. And the comment says pretty much you have to stay up with technology. And a lot of practitioners took that to mean we have a new duty, right? Oh, this new thing, totally Mm -hmm. new, out of the blue. Now we have to understand technology. And the fact is, it's not as new and changing as, at least in my view, um, as all of that, a lot of, a lot of us think that that comment didn't create a new duty as much as it just affirmed that if we're going to be operating in 2018 or 2019 or 2020, um, in the legal profession, which is of course in a highly technological world, then we need to understand the basics of the technology that we use. And there's a lot of aspects to that. You know, you need to be using technology, first of all. If all of your um, communications are snail mail, you're probably not going to be able to keep up with the pace of law practice to actually be behaving in a competent fashion. But you also need to understand when you are using the technology, how does it work? At least enough to make sure that you are abiding by your duties that we're talking about, you know, confidentiality, security that you understand it enough, right? You understand that when you send an email, it goes to only the person you're addressing it to. And you understand well enough not to CC your opposing counsel on your client communications. You have to be, <laughs> you know, you, you got to understand what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and it goes beyond that. If you're in litigation, you need to understand that when you seek discovery, you should be seeking electronic data. You know, if you aren't, you're probably violating the rule of competence. And that's not new, just because there's a new comment to the rule, it just solidifies it. Yeah, in today's world, behaving in a competent fashion in this profession includes understanding and using technology. One of the things that I think about when I when I hear that is where to draw the line, because and, and you'd mention it yourself that some some lawyers mistakenly think, you know, well, if I have to be competent, that means what now? I, I need to know how to code these things. I need to build, be able to build it from the ground up. But I, on the other hand, and, and that's one extreme, but on the other hand, I do have to have an understanding of it, at least in a basic way, to know how it works so that I'm not getting myself in trouble. So how do you, how does the lawyer balance that? Well, for one thing, I think the line is constantly moving. And mm. that's, you know, a completely fair way to look at things when lawyers go, but I don't really know where it is. Yeah, you're not going to all the time because it does move. 
you know, where at one point email was brand new and maybe on the fringes. Now it's so mainstream, you'd better understand it. But then there's something else that's new and on the fringes, you know, video conferencing or sending videos through text is maybe a new thing. But at some point, that's going to be mainstream, too. So it continues to move. And that's one of the challenges. But if you look at some of the ethics opinions that get into really nitty gritty stuff, like the e-discovery ones, I like those not because we all are involved in e-discovery to the extent we need to read those and digest them for our everyday practice, but I like them because they get into some really highly technical issues. If you were to go into a big litigation today and seek emails from the other side, there are all kinds of issues, right, with metadata and database storage and what's going on off-site, what's been purged, what hasn't, has it been deleted, can it be retrieved, really complicated technical issues, and I'm probably only scratching the surface. And a real e-discovery person <laughs> could tell me that I'm only scratching <laughs> the surface. But I don't actually need to know how it all works and how to figure it out. The e-discovery ethics opinions tell me I don't need to know it all, but they tell me I need to get someone on board who does. And so I think that's a really important way of looking at our duties with technology. We don't have to understand every bit of it, but when we hit a wall where we don't get something and we need to understand it in order to make sure we are performing competently or to make sure we're protecting our clients' information, then we need to get the right help. That's where that line really is, is the edge of our abilities um, versus where we have to get to in order to make sure that we're complying with our duties. Well, that makes a lot of sense, especially when, well, a good analogy is, you know, you're let's say a new lawyer and you want to start practicing family law that the rules typically recommend that you bring on uh, an, an older, more seasoned lawyer uh, as a consultant so that when you're doing stuff, you could run it by that lawyer to make sure you're not, you're not screwing up your client. And I guess in the same way you can bring on a consultant to advise you about technological issues, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, Okay, so com being competent and being competent in technology is not not the mountain that we think it is. No, it's really not. So one other issue that is really interesting to me, um, it's been coming up a lot in the news, and it's it's the other rule that gets triggered here is fee splitting. Um, and so I don't know if it's <laughs> too much to say famously, but Avo famously. Um, kind of tackled this with its marketplace service, you know, legal services mm -hmm. that it was providing on a flat fee basis. And now they've pulled back from that because they got um, bought by a new company that doesn't really have that as, as, as its focus. But it, it was, you know, revolutionary in the sense that creating a legal marketplace where people could buy flat fee legal services at that type of scale um, was pretty remarkable. And it seems common sense that if a company, you know, like if you have that kind of marketing reach provided to you by some, you know, third party like Evo, that a lawyer would be more than willing and it would be fair to, um, to pay them, you know, for, for the service that they're providing, that this is done in, 
many other arenas. I, I mean, we have Groupon, for example, is the mm -hmm. biggest example that pops to mind where you own a restaurant, you want people to come uh, to your restaurant because maybe it's new or maybe uh, it's just not as pop popular as it used to be and you have a new chef, whatever it is. And you put a Groupon out there and then you split some of the money that you get um, you know, with Groupon. So wh why is this? I mean, I, <laughs> I know there's a rule, but, but what it, what it, you know, so there's a thing for me that there are rules, but what is the why behind the rule? Like, what is the, the potential downside that is so concerning that justifies why we have this rule against fee splitting? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think the original why and remembering that these rules are not even close to new. Um, I think the original why was that somehow lawyers' judgment was going to be skewed, that instead of looking out for our client's best interest, we would be looking out for the interests of the entity that referred us business. And somehow that is different if we are paying the entity, if we are paying to be recommended or paying to be part of that marketplace, particularly if we're splitting the fee with them. Now, remember that sometimes it's okay if we're just paying like a membership fee or an advertising fee is okay, but f splitting our actual fee is impacting our judgment. That was part of the idea. Um, I think the other part is that when you're splitting the fee, the non-lawyer, if it's an actual non-lawyer or a company um, is collecting part of a legal fee that they didn't earn. And that was a concern that somehow we are now taking these precious legal fees that only lawyers should get because you have to be a lawyer to get a legal fee. And mm -hmm. now they're going outside of our licensed individuals. Mm -hmm. I think it's all bunk, right? <laughs> Frankly, I think that none of it makes any sense in today's world. I think the idea that we are so easily influenced if we're splitting our fee is absurd. And it goes counter to the other rules, which are all intended to guard against our apparent incredible ability to influence people. If you look at the advertising rules, right, like having to label things advertisement, that was one of the few changes in the, the new model rules. You no longer have to call it an advertisement. Do we really think consumers can't tell that an ad is an ad? Um, <laughs> So we apparently have these Jedi mind tricks that we can influence right. people into doing things they weren't otherwise going to do. But if we split part of our fee with an entity that recommended us, or if we are being recommended by an entity, um, now, now we're not able to exercise independent judgment. I just, I think it's absurd. Right. Well, one of, you know, one of the ideas that comes to mind when, when you like having legal fees only retained by lawyers. Um, like if there was, if that was part of the why back in the day, it, it, I mean, w lawyers pay expenses. There, there, there's all, all kinds of things that come up and it's not, it's not like lawyers have, they're exempted from having to pay for services of other people. No, you know? not at all. <laughs> in fact, no, and if you think about yeah. it, like, so I used to advertise on Avo. I had one of the premier listings at one point. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember that depending on how many, I don't know if it was counties or zip codes I wanted my ad to show in, I paid more. Right. Okay. Well, 
the idea of paying more and being in more areas is to get more fees. But if I paid them based on a percentage of the fees generated from the ad, it would not have been okay. What honestly is the difference between those two things? I, I really don't know. I mean, I mean, I'm on the same page as you. And one one of the things that I remember reading in, in some opinions um, about sharing the fees is that somehow it wasn't proportionate or justified by the the amount of marketing expense that was involved. But when I read that sometimes, I think that the people that wrote it don't really understand how marketing works or the expenses involved in marketing. Because a lot of times, it, you know, an additional amount of money is justified by the type of marketing it is. Because let's say if it's a personal injury case, um, there's a lot more cost involved than if you're trying to get, um, I don't know, an immigration case. You know, personal injury keywords are really, really expensive on AdWords. So hundreds of, you're going to be paying hundreds of dollars for just people clicking on it, not getting the lead, but just the clicks. And so it would justify a marketing company charging a heck of a lot more than they would for the immigration case. So. Right. And it's also proportionate to the amount of money generated by those cases. That's why they cost more and people are willing to pay more because those personal injury cases generate more in fees. So why can't we just pay as a percentage of the fee? And if you look outside of law, if you, I, one of the areas that I always like to look at is recruiting. When you go into recruiting, recruiters are paid percentages, right? And they split the percentages with salespeople and business development people within their firms. And it's not about, well, I'm going to pay you this many dollars, not this percentage, even if you don't generate something. Well, no, they're commission-based. And the really good ones have a bigger commission-based because they're good at it. You know, that's, the marketplace works that out. And right. people's judgment isn't somehow horribly compromised. You know, it, it's all market forces for a specific purpose. And here, the client, our legal clients, would not be so terribly harmed by market forces playing in to the advertising. The other thing that I think that not only the fee splitting rules, but the advertising rules assume is a really dumb consumer. And I just think that's unrealistic today. There are certainly unsophisticated people out there. Not saying there's not. I'm sure that, you know, there's plenty of stories that people can tell us of of very innocent grandmothers. Mine was probably one of them um, who just didn't understand what they were getting into. It happens. But I think as a society overall, we are not so unsophisticated as to be easily swayed and easily misled by recommendations or the advertising itself. And I think that the fee splitting and advertising rules all assume that we have this consumer base that we have to protect. And I just think it's, it's not, it's not current. Right. And there's still, there, there's still many rules and laws about consumer protection. So if there was any concern, um, like let's say, for example, this rule was eliminated, the, you know, the concerns about misrepresentation or about protecting the consumer would still be, you know, more than adequately provided for, right, in, in the consumer laws that are available. Absolutely. We'd still be subject to all of those other rules and laws out there. 
Yeah. So taking a, a step back slightly from it, I mean, if we look at other other countries, I mean, uh, the UK has opened up, you know, alternative business structures. And before them, um, Australia did the same thing. And they do allow for the actual sharing of fees between non-lawyers and lawyers or barristers and solicitors and right. <laughs> and non-barristers and solicitors. But do you think that change will ever come to the United States? I'm hopeful. I think that we are very slow to change. And I think that the fact that the UK and Australia have done it is really helpful for us because as far as our profession goes, we don't like to be the first. Um, we don't like to change first and see what happens. And I think having those examples is really helpful. They have similar legal systems and they haven't fallen apart. You aren't hearing terrible stories coming out of those countries of how consumers are being so defrauded now by these crazy, um, as you said, solicitors and barristers. Um, but the fact that we have that example is only sort of one step for us. Um, we have a lot of complications in the way that we govern our profession. One of them being that every state has its own politics, set of rules, set of, you know, board of governors or whichever, whatever the state calls it. There's so many political systems involved. And that concerns me that we are going to just continue to be glacially slow in our progress. The fact that we can look to other places and say, hey, this worked means that maybe we can get just one state to start to change. I know I've heard from people, you know, former presidents of other state bars and all that. Oh, maybe this one will. Maybe ours will. Um, there's some progress in the Pacific Northwest. So I'm hopeful that maybe one state will be willing to be kind of the training ground in the U.S. And if one can make a big change, the other 49 will probably poo-poo it for a couple of years and, right. you know, say, well, they're just crazy. Um, every state has their thing, right? They have their other state, their rival state. <laughs> they all go, oh, that's crazy. Or if it's California, everybody thinks we're crazy. Um, yep. And so that it'll, it'll probably have to happen like that. Like somebody will have to have the courage to be the outlier. But then when things don't fall apart there, hopefully it will have something of a domino effect. I think it'll be a very slow one, though. I mean, I'm not holding my breath. So we we talked about, you know, some different areas uh, of, of legal ethics that apply to technology. We talked about confidentiality, competence, fee splitting, and advertising. So I want to bring this around to bearing on, on AI. So artificial intelligence, does it trigger amongst these different rules that we just talked about, are there any specific concerns that come up when we talk about artificial intelligence? And just to kind of define it a bit, um, you know, artificial intelligence, at least the way it's used now, is a way of, uh, of automating tasks, conversations, but also employing sometimes machine learning to basically look at data and then derive some kind of a conclusion from that data or to synthesize it in some way. So when we look at that, how do we look at it from an ethical standpoint and staying compliant? 
Well, AI is really interesting in part because it seems to trigger one of two extreme reactions, neither one of which is really appropriate. The first is the outright fear. And that's the, you know, the rise of the robot lawyers idea when you right. picture the, you know, massive stormtroopers or the earlier droids army and you, oh my gosh, they're coming and they're going to take over the profession. Um, and then the lawyers who have that reaction just sort of run in fear and don't learn about the benefits that AI can bring. On the opposite end of the spectrum are the lawyers who embrace this notion that we could have AI doing so much. And then they want to push it and say that they can almost abdicate some of their responsibilities to AI tools. And that's not right either. Um, so somewhere in the middle is the appropriate use of AI. And the way that I view it is that we have at our fingertips these incredible tools and even more incredible people to develop more tools as we can see how they can be used. And so if you approach your practice from as client-centric of a position as possible and say, how can I make coming to my law firm and getting legal services from me a better experience for clients? You can start to identify places where AI has an appropriate role. But all along the way, you have to keep in mind the key concerns. So you have to make sure that when you employ the tools, you're not abdicating responsibility for information and allowing it to be utilized in a way that's inappropriate and violates confidentiality. And you have to make sure you're still on top of what's happening for your clients. So if you're feeding their information into a tool and getting a result, and like you said, some of this is machine learning, right? Some of it's amazing what it can do. When you get that result, you're not blindly utilizing it without double checking whether things make sense, whether the tool's operating properly. Um, it can't substitute for your judgment as the attorney. You still have to make sure you're on top of it from a competence standpoint. But to not utilize the tools, to take that first approach and be like, this is scary stuff, I'm running away, you're missing opportunities. And missing opportunities for scaling, for automation, for efficiency, for profitability in your firm, and for creating a better client experience. Well, I love to hear that. I mean, ethics does not always have to mean we can't do something. Great things can come from using technology and AI in particular, right? Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that I always try and stress is that when I talk about, hey, I'm talking about ethics. Oh, let's talk about happy clients. People sometimes say, wait, I thought we were talking about ethics. How'd you end up on <laughs> happy clients? I'm like, no, happy clients means a lot fewer bar complaints fewer malpractice actions. Um, and there's there's a couple ways that that happens. One is just that happy clients tend not to complain about you. I find that even when the case goes badly for a client, if you have treated them in a certain way and you've respected them and made this a good client experience, your win or loss on the substance of their case is not actually the issue. It's how do they feel about your service and how have you handled taking care of them? So yes, if you're using technology in ways that focuses on the client and helps make a better relationship, you're actually less likely to have a malpractice or ethics complaint just because the client's happy. And then if you take that further, you are also le less likely to make mistakes that lead to ethics complaints and malpractice actions. 
you know, the, the court rules idea that we were talking about earlier, you, using tools to make sure you're not missing deadlines. Well, we talked about it in the context of, hey, be careful, you still have to use your brain, which remains true. But if you're utilizing tools, you can be doing things like keeping in better contact with your clients, making sure you don't fall down on obligations to keep them informed of key developments. If you're using certain triggering tools, like uh, even just as simple as a calendar tickler onto something much more complicated, like an AI program that says, hey, you haven't touched this file in a while. I'm thinking maybe it's time to bring this back to the front of your mind. Um, those are things that are going to help you not miss deadlines, which, of course, is a key way you end up with a malpractice complaint. So there's all kinds of ways that you can use the tools within your practice to make sure you're not screwing up along the way. When I think about ethics, it really comes down to just being a good professional, you know, and providing a good service to your customer. I like to call it call them customers sometimes because I think it puts the right perspective on providing good service to the people that we work for. And if you're doing that, like you said, that's only going to make your business more profitable. It's only going to bring you more clients because there's going to be positive word, word of mouth. And I think ethics, I guess sometimes when I hear it, it becomes so like kind of academically oriented and it becomes technical, but it's really about being a good person and being honest and forthright with the people that you work for, especially when we have these special duties as lawyers. I just really appreciate you helping us to understand how to do that in light of uh, where we are today. So well, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you, by the way, because it does get kind of arcane and technical sometimes. And that's, I think, just a a result of the rules being as old and complicated as they can be sometimes. Um, but it's really not, it's not the roadblock that you might think it is. Don't hear ethics and assume you can't do something. Hear ethics and say, okay, these are just some hurdles I have to make sure I follow and you know the right path here and I can still use all these great tools to make a better client experience. Well, thank you, Megan. I, I love learning more about how legal ethics applies to technology, how to keep a law firm practice on the right side of ethics um, and why it matters. So thank you again for sharing your time and thoughts. How can people keep in touch with you? People can reach me um, by email, which is just Megan at ZavierLaw.com or hit me up on Twitter. I'm at ZavierLaw. So I always appreciate a follow and messages and comments. So I'm always happy to share. And there's also a podcast called uh, Lawyers Gone Ethical, where we talk about some of these issues and put an ethics slant on just about everything related to law practice. And I really love your podcast. And I know that people can also catch you at ClioCon that's coming up in October, right? That's right. I will be speaking with Jess Birkin of Birkin Law on making digital products out of your legal knowledge. Wow, that's going to be cool. Um, well, thank you, Megan, for being my guest today. Uh, thank you all for listening in to our podcast today, Legal Ethics in the Age of AI. Again, this is Tom Martin, and I want to thank you for listening uh, to LawDroid Live. Check us out at LawDroid.com or on Twitter at LawDroid. Thank you. Bye.